door to the thing, and then if we shut these, maybe. I don't know if that'll do any good or not. Thank you for doing that, Pat. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for the teaching and scripture that we have about God, about you, and we're, we're grateful for this, and we want to learn about you. We want to know you and uh, experience you more in our lives and love you more, everything that we've been talking about uh, so far, and we just pray that you would guide us tonight as we look to this very, these very important topics, even about your existence and then some of the attributes. Uh, we just ask that your spirit would guide us, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, well, um, every two years, Ligonier Ministries, which is uh, uh, what, it's the, the ministry that R.C. Sproul oversaw for years, and, um, and they put out really good materials, and every two years they do a state of, it's called the State of Theology in America, and so the way they do that, they put out these, they'll put out statements uh, on a, like the, you'll, you had to participate in the, in the um, survey, and they put out certain statements, and you have to, you had to mark whether you, everywhere from strongly agree to strongly disagree, okay? So strongly disagree, agree, you know, whatever, or it goes up to that. And uh, so they want to kind of take the temperature of theology in America, and then within everybody that they survey in the United States, they also, you, you have to mark on there what, what kind of, if you consider yourself a Christian at all, if uh, what you know, what kind of Christian you are and different things. The, the findings that we will find the most fascinating come from those who were interviewed that claim to be evangelical Christians, which is becoming a, in some ways, a problematic identifier because what does it mean, okay? But here's what they, what you, if you were on this, taking this survey and you were going to say you were evangelical, this is what you had to affirm, Okay. And this isn't on your handout or anything. This is just me, me talking. And, and by the way, you can, you can find this all, all online uh, if you wanted to look at it after tonight called the State of Theology 2022 because they do it every other year. So um, they, evangelicals were defined by Lifeway Research. That's the, the name of the organization. As people who strongly agree with the following four statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's, and, and if you believed those, you were an evangelical. And so that's how they would then separate out of all their findings, those who are evangelical. Now, some of the questions... Or they're, again, they're not really questions, they're uh, statements. Uh, as an example, the first one, uh, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. And so you'd have to read that, and then you're like, you had to decide whether I strongly disagree with that, or I strongly agree with that, or somewhere on that continuum, right? So, so God learns and adapts to different circumstances, um, 
of evangelicals agreed with that. Now, if there's anybody here that is unclear on this, what this is a problem because of one of the things we have to hold true about God is that he is unchanging. He is, uh, the, the attribute we'll talk about eventually is immutable, okay? He's unchanging. And he never learns anything. He already knows everything, right? He's omniscient. And, um, and so there's never anything that dawns on God or like he, something catches him off guard and then he responds to it or whatever else, okay? So, but that's kind of a startling response that almost half of evangelicals that were polled um, believe that that's, they, they read that and they're like, yeah, he does. That's a problem, right? So is theology important as we study it? It's important, right? Or here's this one, and we'll learn more about this when we study Romans 5, because that's what Romans 5 is largely about. But that statement is, everybody, uh, no, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, right? So if you go to Calvary for any length of time, we chuckle at some of these because we know this isn't true. But uh, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Any guesses at the percentage of evangelicals who took this responded? How many percent? Okay, 75, yeah, you guys are even harder on evangelical Christians there, but 65%, 65% said um, everyone's born innocent in the eyes of God. So again, theology is very important and it's important for us to study theology and it's important for us as we you know, have you know, sermons, Bible studies, all these things that we're talking about uh, biblical truth. So here's another one. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. (laughs) I won't even ask you to guess, but it's 56% of evangelicals now agreed with that. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which of course we know is entirely not true. It has to be only in Christ, right? This is one of the basic tenets of Christianity. As a matter of fact, in the first century, this is why, or one of the reasons, Rome was persecuting Christians. It wasn't because they had some new God. Rome didn't care. It's that they were saying he is the only God, right? That was the big deal. And, uh, and they denied the, you know, the deification of Caesar and those kinds of things. They've refused to worship other gods. This was the big deal. And yet now we're to the point where, according to this poll, those who identified as evangelical Christians, over half of them, agree with that statement. All right, here's one. Um, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, thankfully, the percentage that agreed with this is a little lower, but 43%, four out of 10 professing evangelicals who took this survey said Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Then I don't even understand how you would say you're evangelical if that were the case, right? And then this one, um, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% agreed with that. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 38% believed in that. 
So this just shows, and I, I brought that out, and I, I encourage you to go look at the rest of those. And, and then, too, you, some of you might find it interesting to see what Americans generally are thinking about theology and kind of the, the spectrum of those. And some of, them, some of the things that people were affirming um, or still affirming among Christians was good, and, and you know, that there's a holding strong in different things. And then there were others that were just... Almost shocking to hear about it because of some of these things are just so basic. Uh, they're just elementary doctrines that we would hold true um, that every Christian should have been just, if you're an evangelical, should have just been 100% of Christians that would say that. Otherwise, you're not evangelical. I mean, the whole fact of the matter is evangelical Christianity developed from what we call fundamentalism, which was the fight for the truthfulness and errancy of the Bible. Like you take the Bible um, as fact and you read about it as fact and this really happened. These aren't myths and fables, okay? And so the, very, the fact is that if you say then, well, I'm an evangelical Christian, but then you deny that the Bible is true or literally true, then you're not an evangelical Christian. Or if you believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, then you're not an evangelical Christian. And part of the problem is everybody can just call themselves what they want to. And this is why the labels come in to, uh, that are really problematic that we experience now. And the question going on is, should we keep some of these labels, right? Because they're so confusing to people. And, um, and one wonders how helpful they are. So, um, but anyway, so that's why we study theology and especially when we want to, when we when we're thinking about God, who He is, this is basic to our understanding of Christianity. We need to know who God is and um, what God is like. Right? We need to understand as much as we can from the Scriptures about who God is, so we can um, draw valid conclusions about. God, which are, that is our theology. When we draw conclusions about what the Bible says about God or anything else, that is our theology, right? So we want to make sure that we're, we're getting the right theology. Um, now, I've never read it, but I, oh, and I also thought I'd make you aware of this. I, I've never read it, but attached to this um, survey online, I saw a deal where you could get for free, download it for free, um, R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone is a Theologian, which I've always quoted him in that where R.C. Sproul said, everyone's a theologian. The question is whether you're a good one or a bad one. I didn't know it was an actual book, but it is. He wrote it as an introduction to what we're doing here, which is systematic theology, just saying everybody should know these certain things and we should teach this in a systematic way so people can understand these things. You can download that for free if you're interested in it. I'm sure it's really good, uh, though I've, I've not read it myself and... But at any rate, okay, we are talking about under the heading of the doctrine of God generally, we're still in the existence of God. Next week, we'll move on from this, but this week, again, we're going to talk about his existence. And, um, you know, uh, you'll remember that we're kind of coming at this with the approach uh, that everybody inherently knows there's a God, okay? There are people who will say they don't believe in God. We call those people atheists, right? 
Uh, no God is what that is literally. There's no God, okay? Um, but without actually saying it to them, we don't believe them because we know that inherently, according to Paul, we're basing this on Scripture itself, that because of creation, remember we talked about that, that general revelation of God, they can see that there's a God, but then what do they do with the truth about God that they have? They push it down, right? They suppress it in their own unrighteousness. Because by nature they're sinners, they don't want God. And so they push it down, and then what's the next thing they do? Historically, from Romans 1. What do they do? No, they push it down, then they, they make their own gods. Okay, out of the things God has made. So they, Paul put it this way, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for the things he created. And they make those their gods. And we said that that's very important to understand about humanity. When we think about human beings, we have to understand that they were made by God to know God and to worship God. Their very beings were made to glorify God, as the catechism says, and enjoy him forever, right? So, as much as they want to get rid of that, they can't. You can't scrub out that uh, embedded nature of human beings in the way that God's made them that they're seeking to worship something. They have no choice. They become idolaters by nature, okay? So we know that there is a God, so we talked about that. And then we talked about some of the... Um, some of the arguments for the existence of God or what some theologians call the proofs of uh, the existence of God, which I don't really care for the term proof only because essentially, and that's how we'll end today's message, is that you can't really prove to somebody, uh, to a skeptic uh, about God. They're going to keep taking any knowledge they have anyway and they're going to reject it and they're going to have their counter-arguments or whatever. We're not looking to prove the existence of God because remember the Bible makes no effort to prove God's existence and makes it very clear that he's not hiding and never has been and that they've known he's existed, so those kinds of things. But there are ways in which we've historically, human beings have been able to reason that there is a God, because our faith is not an irrational faith, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable, it's rational. And so one of the reasons, of course, is that you see creation. That's the cosmological argument, right? That you see the cosmos, you see the creation, and you just know. Then there was the teleological argument, right? That is the, from the Greek word telos, which means goal, uh, like everything or purpose, everything seems to have a purpose. Everything in life seems to be moving somewhere, okay? And that is evidence that there's a God and people have that instinct within them that things make sense. And we said that we, people will say things like, well, we all, we know this happened for a reason. Even non-Christians will say, everything happens for a reason, okay? Well, where are you getting that? Well, you're getting that, of course, from that inherent nature of yours that God gave you to see everything with order or even looking at uh, the design of the human body or 
an insect or the way nature interacts with itself, everything has order and purpose and design. The, the planets and um, all the things that happen with them, this, this is all showing that there's an, there is a, an argument for God. And those two, that um, um, cosmological argument and teleological argument, come out in, in a passage I want us to look at tonight. Um, And that is Paul's preaching in Athens, Acts 17. Okay, Acts chapter 17. It's Paul at what was called the uh, Areopagos. And uh, I'm pronouncing that in a fancy way to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about and I don't know if that's really how you pronounce it. But it was, it's literally the hill of Ares, the god Ares who was the god of war the Greek god of war, and the Romans called it Mars Hill. You ever heard that expression in the King James? That's what you'll see in the King James, Mars Hill, because the Roman god of war was Mars, and there was this well-known legend of this god of war that was on trial there for killing some other deity's son or something. I don't know the whole story, but then it became known as that. But by Paul's day, what's happening in this place is there are These are um, leaders among that community there in Athens and philosophers, and they had a real influence into uh, social and political life. And so they would sit there and they would listen to people who would bring to them different arguments and stuff. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul had been preaching already in Athens, and they said, hey, come here and and speak before these people what you're talking about, uh, uh, specifically about Christ and the resurrection of the dead and such. All right, so this, if you're, one of the things that you need to understand about this particular passage, uh, and this is actually going to be verses 22 to 31 that we'll we'll be walking ourselves through, is that um, some have tried to take this and model their, their approach to evangelism off it, and, uh, or the idea of evangelism off it, and uh, I'm not a fan of, of taking anything and just exactly modeling any kind of evangelistic pattern and trying to model it off because everybody's different. Everybody you encounter is a little different. They're coming at everything from a different perspective. And um, what's interesting is one author I came across said, this account was not Paul really evangelizing at all because as we'll read it, you'll see he never mentions the cross there's no good news here at all. It's all bad news. And uh, he's introducing them to who the true God is, but he ends with the judgment that's coming and doesn't give anybody any way of escaping it. And almost like he's, what he's doing is just laying groundwork to be able then to go in and explain, right, who Jesus is. And in that way, I think it's very instructive. What does everybody need to know before you share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? And so there's some, thing, there's some elements of it with that. And, um, and so, uh, but this wouldn't be something like, remember uh, what he's going to show here in verse 23, or verse 22, look at this. He says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagos said, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. All right, so they're very religious people, which means 
essentially what Paul had noticed and what was bugging him, actually, is that they were idolatrous and polytheistic. So they shared that innate sense, right, that there was, there were gods. There's more than what we can see, right? And they shared that, okay, but they had many different gods, Okay, so these are people that are very religious. So this, this, isn't, this isn't something like the pattern for an atheist, let's say, because an atheist says there is no God, but perhaps an agnostic, right? What's the difference uh, to, between atheist and agnostic? The ag- atheist says no God. The agnostic says, well, there may be, but we don't have full knowledge of them. We can't know for sure. We don't have the knowledge we need and he would just point out the fact or she would point out the fact and look at, they've always believed in many gods. Which one's the rich God? Why is your God the right God or so forth and so on? But you can maybe use some of this, some of these kinds of ideas that Paul uses here to talk to an agnostic person who would affirm that probably something is out there we just can't know, okay? And he notices that they're very religious. He draws that out to them. They have all these objects of worship. But what was so interesting, verse 23, is they found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That's interesting. Like, they had heard about all these other gods and all their uh, fables and myths about all these other gods, but they had a sense that there was another God who was there, but they don't know him. This appeals, I think, to that idea that, again, when human beings live their lives in this world and they're looking out around and they're seeing all these different things, there's an innate sense that there's something there, someone there that they're unfamiliar with, right? This is why I said we could maybe use this for an agnostic, but that they don't know who it is. And Paul, in verse 23, says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I this I proclaim to you. You think about it, that is really the, the essence of evangelism, but specifically when you're when you're you're trying to you're introducing somebody to the god they know is there but they don't know who he is we have the information so he's sharing that with them right so he talks about uh, so so there's this he talks about the un, un, unknown god that that is there and um in remembering this as we're going through i'm going to i'm going to put out some other things to just to think about as Paul is looking at all these different gods and that, and he's introducing them to one God, the true God, um, it bothers him that they are worshiping all these other gods. And the basis, remember, one of the basic tenets of our faith is that there is one God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And remember we said there is at least two aspects to that oneness. One in being, that is, that will become important. We talk about the Trinity, okay? The, the triune, the triunity of God, three persons, one God, but also the other aspect of oneness, which was what? What's he showing to Israel? Mount Sinai, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That there's how many gods? <laughs> there's only one God. But see, to us, we're just like, well, yeah. But to them and to many people around the world right now, if you went to India, you think they're thinking there's just one God? No, they've got millions of gods. And you go all the way back into this, um, to where Paul is talking about, they have multitudes of gods. So this is, this is the, one of the fundamental tenets in what sets Christianity off is that there is one God and Israel had to be probably many of them when they were brought out of Egypt after 400 years of captivity and being around the Egyptians have to be retrained in the basics. You think about it. It's the fundamentals. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That means there are no other gods besides him, right? He'll even put that into the Ten Commandments. All right, so the oneness of God, uniqueness of God, and that's important too because the, the oneness of God, liberal theologians, um, as John MacArthur calls them, dead guys from Germany, uh, were coming up with these ideas that uh, Israel was polytheistic throughout its history up until even into its later history, and then it developed into this idea of monotheism, which is just simply not true. From the very beginning of their foundation, they were taught the oneness of God and that there is no other. And Israel had this knowledge of the one God throughout their whole history that none of the other nations had. None of the other nations had this kind of knowledge of one God. Okay, so then if you look at, look where Paul goes now in verse 24 and 25. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it. So where does he immediately go now with these polytheistic people? What aspect of God? The creation, right? He, the creator. He's going right in it. He's going right into the cosmological argument, essentially, and pointing out the fact that you probably already know this, Athenians, that there are, there, that all of this came from somewhere, but let me tell you the one from whom it came. And really, in the existence of God, this is where we begin because this is where the Bible begins. The Bible begins with that creation. When it talks about the existence of God, remember, in the beginning, God. That's just, God was, God is, right? In the beginning, there is God, and he is the creator of all things. And uh, that is a good place to start because then that, when we think about the God who is, who brought everything into existence, it immediately makes that God sovereign. Well, lo and behold, look what Paul does. Okay. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. That's the very next place he puts, okay? God's sovereignty. He's the Lord of all that he's created. And now right before them, that puts them as, here's the God that brought everything into existence, and not only did he bring it into existence, he's ruling over it all, all right? And by the way, let me back up for just a second. I'm, I'm kind of mixing something that we're doing here because I want to talk about... Um, I'm drawing out the, the various attributes of God 
that Paul displays here in Acts chapter 17, okay? Now, in this study of the doctrine of God, we're at the existence of God, and then we're going to go on to the being and essence of God and the triune nature of God. That'll be a number of weeks, and then we'll, we'll go into the attributes of God, all right? But right now, we're getting a preview of the attributes of God. And this is so important as these attributes are so important because that way if you're ever taking, if you're taking the 2024 state of theology, you know, Lifeway Ministries, Ligonier Ministries, state of theology, you're going to know how to answer the statements that are on there. You're not going to say things like, yeah, I think God learns and adapts to situations. I agree with that statement. You see what I mean? You're not going to make that mistake because you can see what the Bible says about his attributes. This is why they're so important in knowing who God is. But I put here, what are the attributes of God? Before, and, and let me just introduce you to these and then we'll go back on and we'll just finish up this passage. Uh, I think this is on your handout, right? From uh, MacArthur Mayhew's Systematic Theology. It says that the attributes of God are his characteristics, the various aspects of his essence or nature, the term perfections, and this is, um, I really prefer this term myself, so maybe from now on we'll just start using perfections for his attributes, derived from the Greek term eritos or excellencies in 1 Peter 2.9 works better than attributes because perfections specifies that the characteristics of, um, I, I typed this out so it's wrong, but the characteristics are each perfect and inherently characterize the God who is perfect. See the difference? So when we talk about what God is like, we're going to then talk about his attributes, right? Like he's sovereign. That's what we're talking about here. He's sovereign. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He rules over everything. Well, he's perfect in that. That's one of his perfections is that he is sovereign. A general definition of perfections is as follows. God's perfections are the essential characteristics of his nature because these characteristics are necessary to his nature. All his attributes are absolutely perfect and thus rightly called perfections. Further, since these perfections are essential to God's nature, if any one of them were denied, God would no longer be God. How does that connect to the state of theology we just read? 60%, 50% of Christians said God changes. Why is that a problem? He's no longer God because he doesn't change. So if one of God's characteristics, and it is, is immutability, that is, he does not change, cannot change, that's essential to his nature, that means if you say that he changes, you no longer are talking about God. That's how dramatic it gets, right? I mean, it's like this is being right on who God is is essential. Otherwise, you have an idol of your own making. You've made a God in your own image and in your own likeness who changes like you do, you see. And that is not what we want to do. We want to go in and find out these perfections of God. So with that, I, I had to back up there a little bit. And, um, and it says that, you know, that God is sovereign. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, verse 24 
And that sovereignty has a lot of practical implications. We've talked about some of those things, but one of them I'll, I'll bring up right now. Um, because he's sovereign in the way he created us, male and female, it means the gender dysphoria going on in our culture is going against his sovereignty in many ways, and it is a front to his lordship uh, over his creation. And interesting, in that survey, um, there was one of the statements was, gender identity is a matter of choice, okay? Gender identity is a matter of choice, meaning the person is sovereign and their choice of whether they're male or female. That's what it's saying. But the, the scary thing is 37% of evangelical Christians agreed with that statement, right? So you've got almost four out of 10 evangelical Christians agreeing with the statement that gender identity is a matter of choice. So, but again, when we know our God and we know he's creator, and we know he's sovereign, and then we look back at creation, then we can say, no, that is not true. The choice was up to God because he made them male and female. The choice rested with him, and he made that person male, and he made that person female, and since he's Lord of heaven and earth, we submit to what he's done. You see? This is why it's so important to have these, these types of attributes down. Okay, but he's introducing God here. He's the creator. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 24, he says, uh, He does not live in temples made by man. Uh, he is the God without limits, right? And this would have been something. They had a temple there to one of their gods. Can't remember what it was there in Athens, but... Uh, the idea is, you see that temple there? What a puny God it is that could dwell in that temple, right? My God, this God is without limits, which he would need to be, in essence, if he brought all of this universe, all the vastness of it into existence. He would have to be without limits. And he, uh, he doesn't live in temples made by man. He can't be confined, right? into a space. Uh, he, can, he can dwell uniquely in a place. He can make his, well, let me put it this way. He can make his presence more known in a place. He does that in heaven. So his glory is more revealed in heaven than it is in this room. But he's without limits, without confinement of space. He's omnipresent, right? Everywhere present at all times. He even says later on down in verse 28, he says, even one of your own poets said, in him we live and move and have our being, right? He then quotes one of their very own poets saying, even he is aware of this God that is, this unknown God in whom we have our existence no matter where we are. Because in him we move, uh, live and move and have our being. So he's infinite. One um, catechism puts it this way, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. He is everywhere present at all times, in all his fullness. And then verse 25, this is important. Uh, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, this is really important too as we're beginning our study of the doctrine of God to understand um, that there is a distinction 
between God and his creation. God is not a part of his creation. We are not pantheists, meaning God is in all in the sense that, you know, he, this is God. What are this, the chairs, this room, this podium is God and the expression of an evolving God. Some weird things that different philosophers come up with. That this God is utterly distinct from his creation. God is immaterial in his being. He's not comprised of anything. Okay? He is immaterial in his being. He is distinct from his creation. Um, he is the one that gave life and breath to all mankind. He's transcendent. I have that on your handout. That's the theological term that emphasizes the distinction of God from his creation and his sovereign exaltation over it. He is not part of the universe. He is not the sum of the parts of the universe. He is not the soul of the universe. He is the eternal, uncreated, absolute, self-contained, self-existent, sovereign creator by whose will and power all things exists. They depend on him for their being. He depends on none. And what's interesting is, when you're talking to somebody about God, it's it, like Paul is doing right here. He's really putting these men in their place. You have your very life because of this transcendent God. Okay? He is distinct. He is the life-giving. He is the transcendent God. This also speaks to, since he doesn't need anything... He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he is the one that gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is what we call, um, it's called the aseity of God. I'm not sure if that's on your handout. The aseity, the absolute self-existence of God. I love this. It's one of my favorite perfections of God to talk about. His self-existence. He is from himself, from all eternity. Try to comprehend that. He is life in himself and has always been. He is is absolute self-existence. He has life in himself, or to use the Latin phrase, life ase, hence the word aseity. This ties into the fact that, remember when when the Lord shows up to Moses, and Moses says, uh, he's trying to commission Moses to go back to Egypt and get out the people of Israel, and Moses is like, who should I tell them is sending me? And what's your name? And God uses a verb to identify himself. It's a Hebrew verb that has reference to to be or is. I am. I am who I am, you know? And uh, I am the self-existent one. That's who I am. I'm the one who's always been, always will be. I just am, which is what's remarkable about the Gospel of John. And we're going to spend a lot of time in that. We're talking about uh, the Son of God, an incarnate Son saying seven times, I am. I am statements of John. Saying in and himself, here's this first century Jewish carpenter saying, I am. Right Before Abraham was, I am. That's who I am. It's an awesome thing to think about. Okay, so he is, uh, he, he is uh, outside of his creation, independent of his creation. And yet, in verse 26, he's active in his creation. This is so important to explain to people about the existence of God. There is a God who is. 
and has brought everyone into existence, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He is not detached from his creation in the sense that he just kind of put it into motion and he leaves it. And I think what, he's, I think what he might be appealing to here is that teleological element. Like, can you see the history of the world, men, and how nations had allotted times and periods of existence and things seem to kind of work together and are moving forward? Can you see it? It comes from God, all right? Look at the purpose in among the nations where things seem to be working out in that way. But, but in that, God's imminence is shown. That's the flip side of the coin of transcendence. God's imminence is the counterpart to his transcendence. His imminence says that even though he is distinct from his creation, he's still among it, actively working among it, providentially guiding and directing all things. Everything comes from him and his divine will for what should happen. And then uh, in verse 27, God cares for his creation. This is interesting because he's determined a lot of periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, God wasn't hiding. Remember, we've already said that. And the reason he's revealed himself and the reason he's providentially working in uh, in the world and among the nations and guiding and leading and controlling, one of the reasons is that so that people would seek him, right? That they would actually seek him, find their way to him because that's the heart of our God, right? That's his desire. Wants people to seek him. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that no one does seek him. Right? We learned that in Romans 3. This is the sad part. Yeah. Um, so what this is saying to me that from the beginning of time, every nation that has come and gone, mm-hmm. God has determined their appointed time and who they are or what they call like the United States. Yeah. Yes. Which have been thousands of different nations. And Absolutely. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Like it wasn't just nilly willy. This was a God controlling. Yeah. And can we take that personally too? Hmm. That God had an appointed time for you and for me and an appointed place at Grand Junction. Yes. Can we make that personal? Oh, we can direct. Yes, we can direct it to the very daily momentary events of our lives and we as Christians can't we always look back and see how God was providentially guiding and moving our lives we could just come up with numerous examples of God doing something moving us somewhere keeping us from something that could have been really bad you know doing all these things we see it right I think people largely have that same sense even the people that don't know God this is why Paul's Maybe, not in Paul's mind here, but maybe this is why he's arguing with in this, that they believe that there was something. Um, well, that just yeah. be evident in when the prophecy that Israel 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that the, the verse that we're referencing, I'm not sure that was referring to the 1948 prophecy. Some would say that. But what I would say is that what happened with the Jewish people and going to their land comes from the providence of God, whether this is him bringing in the end times or not. Does that make sense? The providence of it, everything we see is the providence of God. That's how I would describe that. Okay, so, and then just, um, and then if you look at, uh, so he says uh, that they should seek him. Let's see, God's desires, wants people to seek him. Uh, he quotes from their poets, for in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Uh, in other words, he's saying, look at everybody has seen this. Even your poets are seen talking about this God, right? Um, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And essentially what we've seen, what Paul's doing here in this chapter is parallel to what we studied in Romans 1, what he does. Paving that groundwork paving that way for the need of Christ, okay? Um, but here's the thing, and I'm going to end us with this. Um, I put it on your handout as well, I think, on the back page. So there's more on the back page. Um, what we find in other passages is that human beings of their own accord uh, in their fallen state cannot and won't seek God. Paul made it very clearly. No one seeks for God, Romans 3. That's the problem with sinful man. He does not want the one true God. Therefore, if anyone is to be saved, God has to work within the person to seek him. This is how MacArthur Mayhew put it in the systematic theology. In fact, a significantly more radical change must take place for sinful man to come to a true knowledge of the triune God of Scripture. As those whose minds have been blinded to the glory of God revealed in Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, unbelievers do not need more evidence, whether logical or empirical. Rather, they need new eyes to properly evaluate the sufficient evidence they already have. They need to experience the miracle of regeneration in which God quickens the unbelieving heart by shining into it the light of the knowledge of his glory. This only happens only by the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord, you say. And this is why we say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we could have all these arguments for the existence of God. They fall on deaf ears. But the only hope for the human being is that God, yes, can partly use that to start getting them thinking. But then what does Paul say is the power of God unto salvation? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? Romans 1, 16, 17. The gospel is. We present the gospel and then God opens the heart. And they go from, and there are m millions of examples of this. They go from pagans, idolaters. They go from atheists, agnostics, to believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Christ, right? So, good. All right. Any, yeah, now we'll open it up to all questions and everything. Go ahead, Maggie. Uh, the, the question I have, you know, the, um, one of the questions that you, that God changed his mind to think, well, the Bible states, 
Yeah, that's a big question, we'll, when, and we'll cover it much more detail when we get to the actual attribute of God's unchangeableness uh, coming down the road. But no, let me say this, though, let me say this. Um, so what the Bible does is use what we call anthropomorphisms about God that help us understand uh, things of cause and effect with God. So let's say what we talked about this morning in, in Romans 4, we all should know by now, right, that if we believe in Jesus, what will God do? He will justify us, right? So, but there was no change in God in that. God did not change, okay? Uh, but way the, what happens is when God God puts forth for us things that we can see and observe and hear and know from scriptures about him of how he will respond in certain situations without affecting his unchangeable nature. Yeah. 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 Because essentially it's our changing that in order that actually brings God to where he will now pardon. Or if we don't, like sent Jonah into Nineveh to preach, right? If they wouldn't have, he would have destroyed them if they wouldn't have repented. They repented, so he didn't, right? But in him, there's no change and there's no learning. There's no waiting to see, right? We have to get, we have to, we have to, when we do that, we're actually confining God, but we can talk a little bit more about that because it does get kind of like, you know, when you're thinking about it. But yeah, that's good. Good question, Andy. Um, let's go back to the survey. You were talking about there's a certain percentage of people who are going to Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. So postmodernism was essentially what the movement that said um, there's no objective truth. Um, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. And yeah, that had a huge effect in Christian circles. And, um, and also, in addition to that, because of that way of thinking and, and culture generally, um, you can see if, if culture is thinking away, this is why they do it the way they do, I think, in the state of theology, because what they're doing is they'll show how culture is generally thinking and then how that's infiltrating professing Christian churches. So, like, gender identity is a choice, right? Well, nobody's ever thought that ever. But now it's popular in culture, and so it, it infiltrates. And... Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's tied a lot to postmodernism uh, and kind of the, the seeping over of that whole way of thinking that came into the church. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's good. Flory.
Yes. Regardless of what they do or don't do, mm. they still die. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in your daily Bible reading, look for attributes of God. It's one of the things you can do. You look for, you know, every, most texts you look at, maybe all texts you look at, one of the questions, right, we ask would be, what does this teach me about God, not just about some fact of history? What is this teaching me about God? What is he doing here? What is he saying here? You know, those kinds of things. And we learn who God is. That's good. All right, Betty. Oh, no, it's, it, yeah. Right, and that's one of the biggest, okay, so when we talk about the in, unchangeable nature of God, that's one of the biggest things they point at, um, men that would say, or people, that would say, no, see, God does change. How do I know that? Well, look at, he repented of what he did. But again, we have to understand what's happening in, in the Bible is God is explaining to us who he is and what he does, Okay, and we're seeing in an example like that, not that God changed, but he diverted from what he was going to do. Okay, or, or in that case, uh, like let's say, let's say you had a situation where um, the, the Jonah and Nineveh is a good example. Preaches in Nineveh, God says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to obliterate them. Okay, sends in Jonah, Jonah preaches they repent, God relents from the disaster, turns from the disaster he was going to do. But there was no change in God. This is God showing us clearly how he responds when we do certain situations. I think all leading us essentially to the gospel, which is if you trust in me, then you don't go to hell. You don't bear the wrath of God. So, and again, I think we'll, we'll concentrate, let's, we'll park on that like for a whole week, okay? Because <clears throat> that is really where, yeah, our wheels will get turning and seeing those things. And I think it would be helpful just to look at the passages and then connect it to this unchanging God. But if we ever came to the point where we say God changes or God learns something, then we have now lost God. Okay, we've lost who he is. This is why these, because there are other passages where he makes it very clear. He said to Israel, I am God, I do not change. That's why you're not destroyed. Because I'm faithful to what I said I would do or what I said I wouldn't do. So the fact of the matter is you're still here because I'm who I am and I don't change, right? Or Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we have to hold to those and then we, once we get that down, then it's easier for us to go into those individual passages that we might say, well, this is a problematic passage. It's easier, though, if we start with what we know absolutely to be true about the immutable chain character of God and then go into those individual passages and make sense of those from that. Okay, so that's why I said that's a huge question that we'll have to address in its own, in its own context. So glad you brought that up because well, that's what we'll do. We'll spend a lot of time with that. Yeah. that choice okay um, but my question is on the scripture that says or this quote that you have that God has to work 
within the person who seeks him. Yeah. 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 That's a question not for six o'clock because it's six <laughs> o'clock right now and that's more than we can get into. Okay. But I'm basing that and I'm just throw, I'll just throw this out there for food for thought. In um, John chapter six, Jesus said two times he said it. He said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Right. So that there has to be what I like to call this preemptive strike in the heart of a person for them to come. Otherwise, there's still Romans 3 and Ephesians 2. Same with Ephesians 2 is you're dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Yeah, see, somebody's alarm's already saying it's six. <laughs> I heard the alarm. So we'll go on with that, though, later, okay? Or we can talk about it afterwards. But let's pray and, and we can be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for... I thank you for these people that come out to hear about you and enjoy... Um, theology and enjoy thinking about texts and wrestling with things about you. And I pray that this class would just be continue to be a blessing to all of us as we learn more about you. And I pray now this week we would live as though we live and move and have our being in you, um, living in your presence each day and for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.